Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big stories of the day. My name is Ambrin Zaman and I'm a roving staff correspondent for Al Monitor based in London. Today we'll be looking at Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's curious relationship with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Since Erdogan rose to power two decades ago, the two countries have grown steadily closer. Turkey's NATO allies aren't amused, and least of all the United States. Turkey's acquisition of Russian S-400 missiles triggered an earthquake in US-Turkish ties. Some nonetheless argue that Erdogan's open line to the Russian leader is an asset, allowing vital deals to be struck, as when Erdogan, together with the UN, brokered an agreement with Putin to let Ukrainian grain to be shipped to world markets. Yet the two leaders have butted heads, notably over Syria. With us here today to discuss this bumpy bromance is Mark Galliotti, a widely acclaimed expert on Putin and Russia. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me on your show. First of all, do you agree with the premise that um, that Putin would like to see Erdogan remain in power? And if so, why? Why does he like strongmen if that's you know, the case? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is precisely the point. Yes, he'd like to see Erdogan remain in power, not because he has a particular thing about Erdogan specifically, but he thinks it's the, the best option for him, precisely because he feels he can deal with strong men. You know, if we look at his relationship with Erdogan, it's gone through some very profound downs as well as ups. Right. You know, like in 2015, you know, following the uh, shoot down of the uh, Russian bomber in, well, in, in southern Turkey, but in also sort of carrying out operations in, in northern Syria, um, following the assassination of the Russian diplomat and so forth. But in a way, Putin doesn't have a problem with other figures who, like him, strongly support their own country's national interests is what he expects he finds that so much easier to deal with than what he thinks of as the sort of sanctimonious hypocrites of western europe um so i think from his point of view yeah erdogan is the the best choice for him in turkey is there an equivalent of an erdogan in his life because you know so often it's people who are beholden to him like assad like kadyrov others whereas Erdogan is a pretty tough guy himself, very macho. And, you know, we saw this sort of posturing that went on. Do you remember when after the Russians killed like tons of Turkish soldiers, that was in early 2020, then Erdogan had to sort of crawl to Moscow and then was kept waiting with a portrait of Catherine the Great or something. Is that the kind of thing he does? Does he try to humiliate people? Is that part of his MO, you know, especially if they're sort of perceived as, as standing up to him in some way does he feel like rubbing does he like rub people's noses and stuff absolutely i mean th- th- this is the man who keeps world leaders waiting you know all the time this is a man who knowing that angela merkel is afraid of dogs allowed his big black labrador connie 
into the room when 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 she was having a meeting with him. Oh God! Um, no, I mean Putin. Putin plays these rather spiteful mind games all the time. But the interesting thing is, then we we most recently saw Erdogan keeping Putin. Well, waiting. precisely, yes, and that was sort of. And I think this is this is the essence of their relationship. In some ways, look, Erdogan can often out Putin. Putin. I mean, if one thinks about after that uh, bomber shootdown, you know, Putin was clearly visibly furious. Yes. I remember seeing the footage of him talking, uh, and and there were there were sanctions on you know tourism to Turkey and Turkish agricultural products and that kind of thing. But Erdogan basically didn't back down, and eventually it was the Russians who effectively backed down. Erdogan issued a non-apology apology of the sort of sort of I'm sorry I had to shoot down your plane um, variety, and the Russians essentially accepted that. And went on. So, and likewise, if one looks at what happened in the Nagorno-Karabakh war most recently, right? Um, you know, ultimately, ultimately, the Russians had to acknowledge and accept Turkey having a role in in an area that Russia has historically regarded its sphere of influence. So, you know, so so absolutely, er- Erdogan can can play Putin at his own game. So, but in that's, Syria, that's, think, how? On, on how sorry. I'm sorry, I interrupted okay. you, but please don't forget what you were about to say. But just to get back to Syria, where. You said he, he basically Putin had to back down. Why? Why? Because one, I mean, doesn't he kind of have the upper hand in in in, in Syria where he can unleash all these refugees on Turkey and stuff like that? I mean, to an extent, though. Interestingly, I mean, when he, when he does that, though. Actually, that also um, arms Erdogan against the European Union, because then, kind of conversely, Erdogan then pivots to EU and say, oh, seriously, you, you know, if you think we're going to control all these refugees while you still keep us at arm's length, mm. um, you know, so actually, ironically, that, 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 that's, that's an area in which it's, you know, Erdogan also gains from it. But I think gen- genuinely and generally, as I said, I think it's that sort of Putin... You know, he tries his hand often. That's very much the essence of Putinism. He, he's an opportunist. He tries his hand. And if it doesn't seem to be working, then he pivots to something else. So he's very similar to Erdogan. to Erdogan. They're identical in that manner. Absolutely. No, I think there's a very degree, great degree of similarity. So, yeah, sure. I mean, Russia could have done more things to up the ante on Turkey. But when it comes down to it, um, Turkey can also cause Russia significant problems within Syria. But more broadly, Turkey is, was, you know, was and still is a very useful weapon against the West, you know, in that it is this sort of, you know, basically because Erdogan plays this game of playing off Russia against whether it's NATO or the European Union or the Americans, um, you know, actually it was more convenient for, for Russia to, to, to basically pally up with him again. Well, rather than continue this struggle. So that's my next question. Is Turkey of greater value to Putin inside or outside NATO? Because it seems to me inside he can be more of a disruptive force than if he broke off with NATO, but maybe you disagree. Maybe the loss of Turkey would be so huge that that would be great, greater for him. I mean, I think that it, it's not actually... Let's be honest, I mean, Turkey... Yeah, it's part of NATO and it's treaty bound that if you know Russian army invaded Estonia or whatever, it, it should get involved. We'd wait and see if that actually happened. Um, but you know, given that that's not exactly a likely scenario, mm-hmm. I think from from Putin's point of view, it, yeah, it is you know it is more useful to have Turkey inside NATO, particularly because actually of the contrast between NATO 
membership, but not EU membership. I mean, I've certainly had, I'm sure you have as well, you know, Turks very disgruntled saying, great, you know, Europe is happy to let Turks die for its security, right. but not happy to actually let it into the club. Right. So, you know, that that's a continuing point of sort of festering dis- dissatisfaction that is very useful for, for Moscow's point of view. But on the other hand, if, if, if let's say, Turkey either withdrew from NATO or was kicked out of it, that also would be useful because you, you, you would have an angry, discontented Turkey you would have all kinds of recriminations within NATO itself. I mean, I think this is it. Sort of, we often think of, I think wrongly, Putin as an initiator. Instead, he's actually often just simply someone who sees what opportunities arise and will take advantage of it. So I think, you know, he, he can play it either way. But on balance, yeah, I think he would so rather you're describing Turkey a, to be part of NATO. an extremely pragmatic guy. So on Ukraine, and I know this isn't what we're meant to be talking about and you have limited time but just out of curiosity did he really fuck things up i mean did he get it wrong is he too emotionally invested and that's why he can't make the u-turn that he does in other areas yeah yeah i mean i think he genuinely i mean i was sort of first thinking wow you know how could he make such a mistake and and why was he so daring because putin usually is very risk averse for all the macho posturing And I think it is clear that he had convinced himself and no one was kind of dared tell him otherwise that this was going to be a quick and easy operation, that basically two weeks and it would pretty much all be over. Um, because, you know, he has a particular bee in his bonnet about Ukraine that he believes isn't a real country. And he thought more or less that the sort of the state would collapse and the people would, would welcome the Russians in the main. But I think this is it. Having committed himself to that and more to the point, having suffered severe losses in that initial phase... Um, you know, Putin is aware that if he just simply said, oh, well, it was worth a go, didn't work out, never mind, eh? Um, and, and, and pulled out. I mean, firstly, that Western sanctions wouldn't, wouldn't just disappear overnight. And secondly, that people within his own country will be saying, well, hang on, you, you know, think of all these massive costs and what, for, for absolutely nothing? I think you know, his point of view is, I mean, I think from his point of view, he feels, I think, rightly that this is an existential struggle for his political survival in the sense that he has to be able to have enough to show that it can at least be spun as worth the blood and treasure that has been committed. And I think this is a problem. He's now in a position where there's always that sense of, well, you know, one more push, um, you know, maybe next month Western will will begin to falter and they'll stop bankrolling Ukraine. Maybe next month we'll be able to... So this is like a gambler at the casino who can't stop, who keeps thinking, well, next time I'll get hit the jackpot. So how is Turkey's comportment sitting with Putin at at this precise moment? I mean, is he... Does he feel he's in an okay place with Turkey? No, I mean, I think this is a problem because at the moment Russia is not in a strong position generally. And, you know, from Turkey's point of view... Again, given how ruthlessly pragmatic Erdogan is, it's a question of, well, you know, what's in it for me? You know, if, if one looks at, for example, you know, Russia was very unhappy with the Bayraktar drone sales to Ukraine. Sure, But sure. there's nothing they, they could do about it, especially because Turkey continues to have this crucial strength, which is control of you know, access and egress from the Black Sea. Right. Um, you know, given that Russia knew that it you know, couldn't really push things too far, Um, because, you know, it, it relies on the Turks, quite frankly, to, to stop too much NATO um, shipping right. into the Black Sea. Um, you know, again, it, it, it's had to swallow a lot. 
So I think very much from, from Erdogan's point of view, I mean, on the one hand, he's happy to present himself as the, the, the broker who can, can make deals, as in the grain deal, um, because it enhances his international status. And because he genuinely is someone who, you know, both the Ukrainians and the Russians can talk to. But Erdogan's not going to be doing them any favours, the Russians any favours, and, and Putin knows that. But I said, I think ultimately he, you know, he, he can be annoyed at specific things, but ultimately Putin understands pragmatic strongmen being one himself. And therefore, he doesn't let it get to him the way he clearly is on a visceral level, angered by democratic Western politicians, whom he really doesn't understand and who he feels don't understand him. That's very interesting. So how would policymaking on Turkey inside the Kremlin be done? Well, this is interesting because, you know, we this is a, a system that I, I call an adhocracy in that often the people who are actually in charge of policy are not, you know, it's, it's not whatever happens to be on the plaque on their door or on their business card. <laughs> Now, Turkey is interesting because it's one of the relatively few important areas where the foreign ministry still has considerable um, input. I mean, the foreign ministry has become so shrunk and the foreign minister Lavrov is, is, is just so much less of a, of a, of a mover and shaker these days. Um, but Turkey is an area in which actually for, for a whole variety of reasons, first, because there's a pretty strong cater of Turkish specialists and Turkish speakers right. within the foreign ministry. The Orientalists. Yeah, exactly. Um, Lavrov himself, you know, actually works quite well with his Turkish counterpart, I understand. But also because you might say one of the main sort of alternative figures who usually would sort of usurp these roles, the Secretary of the Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev, Um, is actually, I mean, his particular focus is the Balkans. Uh-huh. Um, and so in some ways that kind of excludes him from also being the turkey point man. Um, because it's very hard to, you know, on the one hand be a sort of, you know, playing, playing the, Russian, the Russian hand in, in the Balkans without actually running the risk of alienating Turkey. So, so this allows the Russians to basically kind of, you know, Lavrov can be the nice guy, uh-huh. the good cop, and Patrushev can be the bad cop. Interesting. That's very interesting. But ultimately, it's down to Putin, right, to make the big decision. It's down to Putin. But, but again, we've got to realise that, you know, it's very much, you know, who briefs him and, and so forth. He, you know, he, he makes top-level decisions or, or, you know, or intervenes whenever he kind of fancies it. But again, often... The way the Russian system works is people pitch ideas to the boss rather than the boss having the ideas. Mm-hmm, And so what we've got is it's kind of it's a three-way process. You've got the foreign ministry. Um, well, actually, sorry, four ways, really. Foreign ministry, you've got Patrushev. You've got the foreign department within the presidential administration. Um, and also you've got the business community because clearly there are still strong business connections with, with Turkey. And so in some ways, you know, the, these are all sources of, of pitches to the boss. But I think on balance, it's uh, the foreign ministry and, and the Security Council secretariat that are the, the most powerful sort of voices And where there. does the intelligence apparatus fit in? Because on the Turkish side, Hakan Fidan, of course, has an outsized role. I mean, in many ways, Patrushev acts as the sort of um, the foreman 
uh, of, of the intelligence community, with the exception of military intelligence that kind of roots through the Minister of Defence. Um, but essentially, Patrushev, he was head, former you know, KGB veteran, former head of the, foreign, uh, the uh, Federal Security Service. So basically, um, you know, if, if they're going to play a role, it's generally not direct, it's generally via Patrushev. Uh-huh. And so how important a role do Russia's state-owned companies play in developing these sort of client relations with countries like Turkey? I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, 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 first of all, sort of hold up my hand, I'm not essentially a, a sort of an, an economy specialist. That's, that's not my particular forte. Um, in, in general terms, there are some kind of figures within that sector who, because they have a strong personal relationship with Putin, acquire an outsized role. And there's a man by the name of Sechin who's in charge, of, in charge of Rosneft, who used to be Putin's aide, and who, for example, now has more or less taken over policy, for example, as relates to Venezuela. The oh, oil um, so you have some individuals, but the point is, I don't think there is any anyone like that relating to Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, they there are a whole variety of different enterprises that have interests, but again, none of these are, I think, in and of themselves, really loud voices. Certainly not in, in Putin's cosmology, who basically regards you know enterprises as being there really just to manage the economy for him. He doesn't think of them as business people. He thinks of them as kind of stewards of parts of his domain who just happen to be in the economic sector rather than anywhere else. They themselves might think of themselves as businessmen, but that's not how Putin thinks of them. So in some ways, I think if, if when it comes to Turkey policy, if, if state-owned enterprises are, are wanting to play a role, they will generally have to do so in alliance with one of those sort of... Um, you know, more significant players. So maybe then, you know, if, if the foreign ministry wants to do something that actually would be good for, our, you know, one of the big economic combines, then they will be supporting the foreign industry, foreign ministry. Well, I was thinking of Ros- maybe, uh, Rosatom and this uh, nuclear plant mm-hmm. in in a Turkey that, to me, seems to give Russia quite a bit of, you know, leverage. Because, I mean, for example, where's the fuel for that going to come from? Russia. It's quite extraordinary, and it's sort of been revealed that it's 100% owned. Even the Turk, so-called Turkish company that's the partner has Russian capital. So that's doesn't that give Russia some power? I mean, yes and no. Um, I think that people sometimes think that the power is that, you know, Russia could somehow switch off the electricity or something like that. God, it can't do that. And likewise, frankly, if it started to play um, games with access to nuclear fuel or dealing with the um, spent fuel, then actually that would just be disastrous for Rosatom's operations worldwide. Because, you know, people feel, well, as proof that we can't trust Rosatom, we should go to Westinghouse or, or whoever. Um, the interesting thing about Rosatom's campaign, generally, not not just in Turkey, but but generally, you know, we see operations in Hungary and in Finland, and attempts to do it in, in the Czech Republic and so forth, um, is actually that there is really quite quite an interesting consensus across the board. So the security interests think, yeah, absolutely, this this gives us some traction and some power, and also because there's going to be lots of you know engineers and similar going back and forth, it's a great opportunity to also move intelligence officers. Uh-huh. And because a lot of the actual you know, work will be subcontracted 
to local companies, um, you know, bringing in the concrete or whatever else, that actually gives you considerable degrees of patronage locally um, in terms of, you know, which, which, which companies you wish to support. And again, you know, so you begin to acquire so a certain degree So you do create a client network of some kind through these investments. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, there, that, that I think is the real security issue. Um, is that you have a very long-term project, major project, in which lots of Russians will be involved and there will be a certain amount of patronage. This is something that obviously the intelligence community is really happy with, but the foreign ministry is really happy with too, because it also means that the Turks have a continuing reason to be nice to the Russians. Indeed. Um, so actually there's, there's something of, I think, a consensus um, in decision-making circles about Rosatom's operations, not just in Turkey, at the same, but generally. And the S... 400s. I mean, if Turkey were to get rid of them somehow, would that really piss off Putin? Would he retaliate in some way? I mean, would it would it piss him off? Well, probably. I suppose it depends also how. I mean, if it was get rid of them by giving them to the Americans so that they could reverse engineer and work out exactly how they work, then yes, that would be a big deal. If it was, I don't know, arranging some kind of sell-back to the Russians or to someone whom the Russians were happy, so I don't know, let's say, I don't know, Uzbekistan wanted to buy them, um, you know, and, and Russia could bless the deal, then that would be fine. You know, I mean, it's very much it's how it happens. I mean, but for, from the Russians' point of view, yes, they will be annoyed, but I think they will see and frame this actually as... Turks had to bend to Western pressure rather than those bloody Turks. They, they, they did this a bad turn. So what you've just said to me kind of suggests that for Erdogan, it's really leverage with the West, That's or he sees it that way, which is why he's hanging on to them. It's not out of fear of what Putin might do to him if, if he did get rid of them. Yeah. That's very Very much so. I mean, this, I mean, this is it. Erdogan has been playing the Russia card against the West quite, quite sort of effectively. Um, and look, you know, there, there's, there's a long tradition of using using military. You know, we think of military sort of sales as a way of you know, in which the the seller acquires influence, which kind of they do. But it's actually also a massive way for the buyer to acquire leverage. I mean, this is why Saudi Arabia spends so much on kit that it can't right. use. Right. Because right. it knows that, you know, every time the West starts getting antsy because some dissidents have been chopped up in an embassy, um, <laughs> yeah. then it says, huh, we're thinking of spending, you know, $100 billion on, on a new fighter plane. And suddenly everyone's all smiles and invitations to airfares. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think Erdogan understands this. But I think, again, the Russians are cynical and pragmatic enough to appreciate the, the situation too. So my final question, um, the Muslim card, I mean, we all know that in the day Turkey was quite helpful, wasn't it, to the Chechens? Um, <clears throat> and is there, does that give Turkey some leverage, This, this the fact that, well, first of all, it has this enormous pool now of, of fighters um, in Syria who get their paychecks from Ankara, is there a fear in, in Russia that somehow they could go back, be used against Russia in some way, that there could be blowback? And that's another reason to keep Erdogan on an even keel? I feel this is one of those kind of Quentin Tarantino scenarios where everyone's holding a gun on everyone else. Ah, okay. Because, yes, Turkey could 
play that card and say we're going to basically facilitate the transfer of, of, of fighters either directly into Russia or into areas from which they could affect Russian interests. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the Russians could say, you know, those, those spunky Kurds, um, you know, maybe it is time that, that, we, that we actually sort of you know, gave them a little bit more help. Mm. whether it's in um, you know, northern Syria or whether it's in Iraq, mm-hmm. um, which clearly is, is something that would definitely alarm the Turks. And I suspect that at some point, you know, both sides have found the opportunity to kind of lay out their own kind of option. This is one of these mutually assured destruction situations um, where they, they, you know, yes, the, the, Turks could, the, the Turks could cause the Russians trouble, but they know full well that it works the other way around too. Well, um, yes, I guess that, that, that kind of sums it up. Well, thank you so very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you so much, Mark. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. And this brings us to the end of this week's podcast on the Middle East. Sorry for some of the salty language, and hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Galliotti as much as I did. Thank you and goodbye.